Taking Ship, a guided cruise through dumbest timeline America. I'm Frank Spring, joined by Ellie Jacobs, a man who was recently visited by the ghosts of Notre Dame football, past, present, and future, and woke up a shaken and changed man. Hello, Ellie. Hey, Frank. Good to be with you, even if we are cross-country. Um, we'd like to thank all of our listeners, especially the new ones, for their comments, both positive and negative, and urge everyone to subscribe and rate us on iTunes or whatever podcasting platform they prefer. And follow and us on Twitter at at taking ship and that's ship with a p as in phosphorus find the most obscure podcasting platform you can and rate us there yes preferably something that that uses the cyrillic alphabet yes we want yes we want we want to be huge in in uh in uh, in russia and yeah. on the podcast the political podcasting community and, and yeah. not just russia but in kind of outer russia like we want to be like giant in novosibirsk i mean i think we might already be that's that's true <laughs> there's only one way to find out turn up at Nova, Nova Sibirsk and demand to know if anyone has heard of us <laughs> you listen to taking ship so, yeah yeah I, I feel like that'll just end up in a long night of vodka yes yes that's true but then again what doesn't yeah exactly all right so uh to keep this a little bit short this week um let's start talking about the democrats And a House generic ballot have something like an 18-point advantage, uh, which is kind of unprecedented in, um, well, for Democrats to have that kind of advantage. Republicans have had those kinds of big numbers in the recent, you know, last 30-year past. I don't know that Democrats ever have. Um, But whither the Democratic Party based on those numbers? Yeah, it is uncommon for... uh it's uncommon for either party. It is particularly uncommon for Democrats to have a have a generic advantage like plus eighteen, which is where um, where the Democratic Party is after the pass after the debate and then the passage of the tax bill. This is up from a plus eleven uh, a little earlier in the year, which was in and of itself quite large. This looks like the building of a of a wave. Democrats are taking a lot of heart from that. I think for a couple of reasons. First, there is no reason not to take heart from it in the sense that plus eighteen is very good. Uh, it predicts. Uh, it, I mean, it, it predicts good. Thi- you know, that kind of that that would predict good things in the coming midterm. It predict potentially a wave. There's a lot of talk about the Democratic wave. That talk is justified. I think the other reason that we're talking about the plus 18 and and sort of our prospects for 2018 is post uh, passage of the tax bill. We kind of need something positive to talk about. Uh, so I think that's one of the reasons we've been sort of going on about this. I I will say though, I want to dig into a few things on uh, some of these on some of this polling and some polling that's occurred earlier in the year uh, first it's worth pointing out that uh, that the favorability of uh, D- Donald Trump's favorability is not good uh, congressional Republicans favorability is quite poor although it has rebounded is actually worse than Trump's although it has rebounded a little bit uh, with with Republicans themselves the Democratic Party's popularity is not great either. We've talked about this phenomenon before uh, on this podcast. That's been a constant pretty much all year, and it's not turning around. Uh, the party, Democratic Party, is not particularly popular in the in the, uh, in the in the country. It is more popular than Republicans. It is more popular than Trump. All of that would all that is is good news, but it is still not viewed favorably by anyone except uh, self-identified sort of base Democrats. Right, uh, which to, to me kind of suggests. I mean, the two realities of any kind of polling are actually American politics in general. The parties mostly exist just to be the opposite of the other party. They exist 
to be each other's foil. And because of that, um, one party, and particularly now with the Democrats, nothing really has changed in terms of their platform or what they're selling since they lost in the 2016, the 2016 uh, uh, elections. So it's no real wonder that the Democrats are not particularly polling well, but in relation to Republicans, they are. Sure. By definition, there's always a bit of a seesaw effect happening here. And, uh, and, and if, yeah, and in a sense, they are very much each other's foil. And then when one goes down, the other one goes up. I mean, that's kind of the nature of things. The problem with, with this current strategy, and I'm, you know, I'm not pouring cold water on a time when Democrats should feel pretty, uh, should feel pretty good about what's a, what I suspect may be about to happen in 2018. Um, and there are other indicators out there that are much more encouraging than this, the number of Democratic candidates, the number of people getting interested in politics on the progressive side. All of those are great indicators. Uh, I, am, I am certainly not here to talk anyone out of the idea that, that something very good is happening for Democrats at a kind of national level, but that is particularly at the local level. It is have, right now. We are set up for the Democratic Party has a very enthusiastic base that basically likes the Democratic Party. The, de, the base of the Democratic Party likes Democrats a lot more than the base of the Republican Party likes Republicans. Although that's improved a little bit since the tax bills I mentioned. That's a good way to win a midterm. It is not a great recipe, and, and we have seen this. Before, we've seen this film before several times. It's not a great recipe to build a durable majority, and that's really what we're going for here. Because I think. We do obviously we want to win the 2018 midterm. If if it was a choice between winning the 2018 midterm and then losing in 2020, uh, and then carrying on like this, uh, or not winning the 2018 midterm at all, uh, we would choose to win. That most people would choose to win the 2018 midterm, of course. But what we're really going for here, and I don't think anyone on the on the progressive side would argue the toss on this one. What we're going for here is some kind of long term governing coalition. We're off, we want some long term stability because. Not only is there very real damage, and I mean this, I mean, you know, very real damage being done to people when Republicans are in a position to push their agenda, and we're about to, we're about to see this good and hard over the course of the next year. We've already seen it. Uh, but when Republicans are left to pursue their agenda unchecked, uh, really bad, you know, bad things have a tendency to happen. But we cannot have, it's, you know, I, I, it's, it is, I, I would argue, maybe to the extent of being an existential threat to the Republic, if we, if American democracy devolves into a situation where one party does gains power, pushes through an agenda that is very satisfactory to its base, or even small portions of its base, as is the case of the tax bill, has that completely on loses badly in the next election or two elections down the line, has that completely undone? The you know everything swings back the other way, uh, and essentially what happens is, and then that is that is repeated and. America's policy, like the lead, like the way we actually choose to govern ourselves domestically and internationally, there will always be differences between between as parties switch up. What we are looking for is something that will keep it from being one party does as much of their own thing as they possibly can in the shortest period of time, and then that is completely undone and and replaced by what the other party wants to do. I, as a Democrat, part of me thinks that sounds really appealing. I would love to get in and just shove a left wing uh, shove a left wing agenda down the throats of a, congre- of a Republican congressional minority and move on, you know, and leave it there for as long as it could hold. I'm actually not arguing against that. What we would like to do, however, is to build a party that is, is to build enough support for the country, from the country, in or- that we have a, a, a Democratic majority that is large enough that even in bad years, even in years when the cycle turns around and Republicans do better, some of those tentpole pieces of legislation can hold. The yeah. ACU has scraped by. 
so far, although, I mean, it has had a very bad year. It has scraped by. We shouldn't, we can't be doing this by, we can't be doing this with our signature legislation by the skin of our teeth. When we are in a position to pass and maintain not just big tentpole pieces of legislation, but items that are two or three or four or five or ten, you know, ten items down our, our list of legislative points, and those are able to endure over the course of four, eight, and ten years, that's when we'll be in a good spot. And the only way to build that kind of support uh, is to get the number of popularity up for Democrats, and that means uh, making an affirmative case. We've talked about that before. We've talked about that again Counting on the incompetence and, and outright villainy of our enemies um, is, not, is not what is going to produce that scenario. It may produce a win in 2020, possibly even a win in 2020. It may produce a win in 2018, possibly a win in 2020. It is not going to let us pass legislation that is going to be durable over the course of, you know, a, over the course of six to 10 years of potential Republican counterattack. Right. I, I mean, if you go back to Democrats winning in 2006, it was a wave election. It was against a very unpopular president during a very unpopular war. And Democrats got, you know, they went up plus 31 seats in the House, I think, and, you know, a handful in the Senate. I don't remember the number off the top of my head. And that majority lasted until 2010 when they all got booted out because, because. largely because of Obamacare and the other things that they had passed. Exactly what you were saying. You're, you're putting things into place that aren't going to pass. And a lot of this, interestingly, I mean, people always put a lot of blame onto Newt Gingrich and how he changed the game so much in D.C. And part of that is true. Um, but part of a, something that is also um, often forgotten, and there was a great book about the Clinton-Gingrich uh, relationship. I, I don't, can't remember exactly what it was, but it, I can't remember the title, but it was a really interesting book. Um, this I, The idea I'm about to say is not from that book, but the idea basically like where triangulation, this idea of the Clintonian tri triangulation came from, was because whereas up until 1994-ish, there had always essentially been three parties in this country. There had been the right, the left, and there had been this massive group in the center, which included, you know, Southern Democrats and Northern Republicans. In 94, that all ceased to exist. 94-ish, again, I don't have to point it right at there, but 94-ish, that all ceased to exist. And Clinton, recognizing that if he wanted to do anything, he started to have he needed to start cutting deals with the Republicans. And he was looking at, you know, he was going to be in office for another six years. Then Gore was going to be in office. And then, you know, whoever else was going to be in office. I mean, Clinton often, you know, he and Blair had this idea that they were building, you know, the, the, the third way for the next century or whatever their line was. And Bush, by, you know, when the Supreme Court handed the election to, to George Bush, that demolished that whole concept. And the very idea of finding common ground, um, whereas in the past, you know, up until 94, it wasn't necessarily common ground, not just where the vast majority of Americans were at any, at any given time. Um, after that, it became finding common ground on anything, you know, uh, um, with welfare, fix it, don't end it, that kind of thing. You know, a lot of the other things that Clinton is either fried for or prayed for, uh, praised for, uh, that all evaporated. And as the parties become more and more polarized and more and more, you know, base-centric, we end up with a situation where now, and Obama did try to um, reach out and try to do bipartisan legislation. I mean, the ACA, the way it was presented using the Romney uh, heritage plan was the biggest gift to the Republican Party ever. At the time, yeah, he the liked idea of the Republican talking point. Yeah, sorry, the idea that the Republican, the Republican talking point that the ACA was in any way uh, inflicted upon anyone without, you know, with, with any irregularity of process is complete nonsense. I mean, that was the, the Democratic Party bent over backward to make this work with Republicans who essentially yeah. used to play and, and Mitch McConnell made the decision very early on where he, we're going to make him a one-term president. 
And, you know, that that's where we're at. So, you know, with any hope that Democrats will win the House, I'm, you know, I, I still remain a little bit more pessimistic on that than, than you do even with the new polling numbers. Uh, Senate, who knows at this point, uh, you know, if Thad Cochran goes down, is suddenly Mississippi in play? I don't know. Yeah, this no one know. Yeah, the the no one prognostications at this stage of the game are. I mean, actually, I would say that like prognostic. I want to actually take. I'm I'm now going to, uh, to take a strong stand against against trying to say what will happen against prognostication itself. At this point, especially given what we've seen, all we can do is begin to assess the percentage likelihoods of various outcomes. Which is to say, all we can do is say, you know, is, is there, you know, is there a percentage chance that the Demo- that the Democrats will retake the Senate? Yes. How big is that percentage? I mean, who the hell can say? But it's more than a than a than a, than a simple like. There's a one percent chance if everything goes right. Like it is a, it is a strongly existent possibility. Right. But putting it down to a binary is, at this, especially at this stage of the game, would just be ridiculous. So yeah, right. sorry, you're saying, you know, it's well, I mean, t- taking ship rule, taking ship rule of thumb number six hundred and forty-two. In dumbest timeline America, there is no sense in prognosticating. That's exactly right. The, the dumbest, except to say that the think of the dumbest possible thing that could happen. That's what's going to happen, and that and then predict that. Yes. Yeah. So the dumbest possible thing that could happen is, well, at this right now, the dumbest possible thing that could happen is Republicans hold hold the House because all the numbers are pointing to the opposite, which would suggest that the opposite is the smart, smart thing. thing. Yeah, there's some truth to that. The other thing would be that the Democrats hold get the House, and we elect um, we elect senators who then end up being unre- being end up being super unreliable Democrats. Yeah, I mean like Jones and Jones and Manchin jump ship and join the party, or they go independent. Yeah, something like that. That would be. I mean, this is this is now sort of verging on. You know, we're we're writing some pretty grim fanfic here, but like anyway, the point is like all things are possible in this land of dystopian dreams. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, exactly. There is an, in- sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. No, no, no. I go. Do you, there's an interesting point on the way I want to talk. There is, when you talk about the, about Democrats making an affirmative case for themselves um, and being able to, being able to build that kind of, the kind of party identification, people liking the democratic party, that's ultimately this boils down to this, right? Like you need, if you want to, if you want to build something for the future, you need for people to like you, not just dislike the other the other person. Right. So, the tax bill is a really in, the way the tax bill is unpopular is a really interesting. Uh, I think has a key to this, and I, I want to talk about it very briefly. So we know the tax bill is hugely unpopular. All it's one of it is less popular is one of the it is the least popular piece of legislation I think that has ever been passed or produced in saving. I mean it's gigantically unpopular and it should be we've heard about you know the, the words that have been used are accurate as an act of generational plunder apocalyptically pessimistic i could go on yeah and the only way that the only way that uh, you know the best defense i've heard from republicans trying to defend this bill is that it was a tax cut for millionaires and billionaires it was tax reform for corporations and it's going. The deficit doesn't matter because even if it doesn't make up the money, it gives us a reason to start cutting gutting spending programs. Right. That is. I mean, that is catastrophically dishonest, deeply cynical, and fundamentally psychopathic. Yeah, well, interest, um, interestingly, interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, today Mitch McConnell in an interview with um, uh, Axios's Mike Allen. Um, uh, said that uh, he's not going to be going after those this year. 
I'm, well, trying, to, I'm, I'm trying to find the actual quote, but I, I also maybe I spent. Yeah, I think they may be they may be a spent force at this point. Uh, but also the but but the entitlement like the entitlement reform as they call it push is coming. The welfare oh. push is coming. One would think that it kind of has to. Yeah, and that's that's the, that's really kind of all they've got left. And at that point, they will have not only committed an act of generational plunder, uh, you know, in the sense that they are paying a large number of extremely wealthy or giving money to an extremely large number of wealthy people now at the expense of future generations. Um, but they also will have added to that um, the you know an, a, you know a, a, a kind of a, a policy that would ba- that would basically suggest that the country is being run by sheriff by the sheriff of Nottingham that we are in fact robbing the poor in order to give money to the, to the wealthy uh, and that's and that and that that they may not have the political juice to carry that they might we'll we'll see the way the tax bill since the tax bill has come up since the idea of tax reform has has come up. Uh, and this has been going on. I mean, you know, the, you know, this 2017 as we reach the end of it, it feels like it's been charitably 35 years long. Uh, so, you know, when this year began and tax reform first got started, sometime in the 19th century, it feels like, uh, when the tax bill first started being talked about seriously, or tax reform first came up in April or May, I think it was, uh, there were a number of surveys that showed something that has been fairly consistent throughout, which is. Voter, the survey respondents, not all voters, survey respondents are what might be called historically content with their own level of taxation. And what I mean is, while a lot of people didn't really, I mean, love paying taxes, the number of people who were who were very angry, who were very upset, who strongly disapproved of the amount of tax they paid is at an historically low level. For the most part, the concern was not, no one was begging to pay more, or at least very few, uh, but uh, people, the idea, but respondents weren't saying, I am paying too much in tax and that, that is the problem. The commonly identified problem is, corporate, first, the first most commonly identified problem is corporations don't pay enough tax. And secondly, the rich don't pay enough tax. Usually, I am paying too much tax. I, the respondent to paying too much tax uh, figures higher in the list of problems. This is really interesting because it is unusual for uh, for a survey to return a situation in which uh, respondents are significantly more concerned about corporations and wealthy people paying too little tax than it is about the respondent, the individual paying too much. That in and of itself exposes some of the vulnerability of this uh, of this tax bill. The tax bill to the I mean gives temporary tax breaks to a number of to a large number of Americans, which it then which it then in many cases revokes and then reverses so that we will all end up paying more, with the exception of uh, with the exception of the very wealthiest Americans if this piece of legislation holds. Uh, but it also raises so there's a question of fairness at work here, but it also this this the unpopularity of the tax bill and the unpo- and the the concern not with how much you know we the you know the middle class and, and below are paying, but with whether or not the rich are paying enough. There's a question of fairness there, but it also reveals a key one that I think Democrats can really hone in on, not just the fairness question, but what are we getting for this tax? It's the question of not that, you know, not, I, my fear is not, it's not I am paying too much. It's it is too expensive to be a person. We're not getting enough back for our taxes. And the answer is not to have us all pay less, but to have other people pay more. So we but to have people with more money, corporations and individuals behind that worth individuals pay more so we can all get the stuff that we're paying taxes for. I think that that is how I would read the subtext of this anomaly that people are more content with the level of their own taxation and less with the, with corporations and, and wealthy people. And that for Democrats is a very simple, very, in case any of you were thinking that by calling for, you know, a, a legislative agenda and a, and a democratic party that could 
garner a you know long-term uh, stable coalition support thought that i was i was drifting toward the center i actually think i might be drifting left on this which is to say if you're talking about going straight after the people with money so that we can all get the things we pay taxes for i mean that seems a pretty basic message but it's it is essentially a pretty light social democratic message but it's one that has bedeviled confounded and eluded democratic leaders for the longest time then it may be time to rediscover that and start shouting it which is another way of saying, and here I end on this particular one, which is another way of saying the first Democrat to come out of nowhere and say, well, we need to fix the tax bill because the deficit is out of control gets struck the hell off. No one wants to hear this stuff. What it seems to me very clear is we need to fix the tax system so that the wealthy corporations pay their fair share so we can all get, so we can all get people educated, get them some roads they can drive on, and so on. We get them some health care and so on from there. Yeah, um... There's not much to add to that. I, you know, the, the basic sense of fairness, uh, which we've talked about a lot on this podcast, um, is certainly something that that Americans just don't feel currently, um, which was evidenced in the election of Donald Trump. Uh, but there are some statistics I heard the other day. Um, from the end of World War II to 2007, the United States economy grew rapidly enough that the standard of living doubled every 35 years. Again, standard of living is some kind of combination of numbers and some such that I don't understand, but it's an important meaning for e- yeah. e- for economists. It's like it's like yeah. I mean, standard of living. Like it's not something you like. I, I would like one standard of living, if you please, and if possible, I would like two. No, I mean you can't. You know, it's it's you know, standard of living is it's something that I think we can all. It's like Potter Stewart and pornography, right? He was just super into it. Uh, yeah. No, sorry. It's, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what it is. I don't. I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. Yeah, um, the legacy of Potter Stewart is not that he was just like I don't know what pornography is, but I've liked all. I can't define pornography, but I've liked all of it that I've ever seen. Yeah, I am super into it. I am writing this in a Supreme Court uh, in a Supreme Court opinion, or my name is not Potter Stewart. Right, one of the best not fake names ever. Right. If, so, um, if someone wrote you a letter and was just like, you know, be a, you know, I would like your, you know, please, you know, please respond to your earliest convenience. Yours very truly, Potter Stewart. I'd be like, yeah, pff, this is garbage. Yeah, clearly, yeah. this you're. Potter Stewart. Yeah, I mean the only the only way you can make that name sound real is to actually become a Supreme Court justice. Yeah, that's right. That's true. <laughs> that's true. It's right up there with Kennesaw Mountain Landis. I mean, it's these things. It's like okay, so like clearly George Lucas was somehow working in the 19th century. I'm just, yeah. I'm not sure how, but like he was going around naming people. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so um, from World War II to 2007, the economy grew rapidly enough that the standard of living doubled every 35 years. Now the rates of growth that we're currently at mean it'll double every 75 years that's terrifying that's that's more than half less than half the speed that it, that it had been and here's the kicker in 2016 fully employed families meaning both parents work and they have a home etc 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 saw no growth at all yeah that's that's exactly right and and this is the this is the awareness that has driven so much of the instability of American politics. I mean, you know, the, the American deal is articulated by Bill Clinton. And, and there are a few of you out there who've heard me go on about this at staggering length, whose heads are exploding. So yes, you're in for another little bit of the American deal here. Uh, is, is, you know, very straight, is very straightforward. Again, as articulated by Bill Clinton, it is if you, and slight paraphrase here, but you know, if you work hard and play by the rules, you win. There's all kinds of ways to unpack that. Uh, we can get in, and then there's, a, there's an entire America's place in the world component to that we won't get into right now, but that's the essential part of it. And the periods of American political instability are periods of American instability, uh, political instability are tied to times when that deal has most publicly been in question. And that deal is in as all is almost always in question to a certain degree, in part because it was not extended to women and people of color in the same way it's been extended to white dudes. 
Uh, that has always contributed to, to you know, they've always had reason to question that. And times when that has been questioned most vocally have been times of political instability. But really between 2000 and 2008, and I've, you know, I, you know, and I would love to lay this all at George W. Bush's feet, but I can't. That the, that notion, the idea that you work hard and play by the rules and you win, uh, was really kind of laid bare uh, and, and and exposed. Uh, you know, by 2008, it was clear that uh, you could work hard, play by the rules, and lose lose everything. Yeah, I, I've driving force behind that's been, and that is, you know, and good work was done by the Obama administration. But that hasn't fundamentally changed. It costs more to be a person now than it used to, and we're not getting paid as much. That's you know, and until that that calculus is altered somehow, uh, this po- this political instability is going to be a feature, not a bug, of the system. Right, and I think part of the problem is is that between Democrats and Republicans, um, whenever the work hard, play by the rules, you know, tragically collapsed, and you know. Most most recently, ten years ago, with the collapse of the economy, um, but probably before then, in the in the aftermath of of nine eleven, it has su- subsequently become Republicans are providing the route to or towards you work hard, you play by the rules, you're going to be okay, and then when whatever they're tossing doesn't work, people just vote Democrats in instinctually, not because Democrats are necessarily offering something better. It's just that it's not what existed. And now we're in this every two-year cycle of, oh, we didn't like what they did, so we're going to bring back the other people. Oh, wait, I forgot that that trickle-down thing is bullshit, so now let's go back to, you know, democratic economics. And, I, and, and you know, going back to where we started with this conversation, um, the idea that we're just going to continue to bounce back and forth with thin, thin majorities that are um, being pulled towards the polar opposites from one another, and every two years it's going to swap – means that there are going to be no major legis- pieces of legislation. There are going to be no ma- major administrative changes. There are going to be no major changes to the government. There are going to be no, be no major infrastructure bills. There are going to be no, infra- no other major anything. And that means that nothing is going to change. That's right. With these problems will go unresolved. That's absolutely right. And that's the real danger, I think, is not that there's never going to be another Democratic legislative majority. There's never going to be another Democratic president. Of course there's going to be. Uh, but if this whipsaw continues, real problems will not be solved. They'll just fester and get worse, and the clock is running out on some of them. I will say, I think you're broadly right about the way that the sort of Republican Party has always said, like, "Where are your path back to the, the deal working?" Uh, and they've been great at finding. Well, part that. part of that is part of that is just kind of the ideology of conservatism, right? Like, okay, you're going too fast. Let's slow down. Sure, and and they have been the party has been great also at. Uh, at you know, at finding other people to blame for why your deal isn't working out, they're masters of that in the way that the Democratic Party has always shied away from a little bit, because our natural, our natural boogeyman, the reason that you can't make this, the reason your the deal doesn't work anymore from a you know from a progressive perspective is capital, it's big capital, like you're being screwed out, you're being screwed by these people, and our embrace of big capital in the '90s. And into the two th- and into the two thousands and under the and under the and under the Obama administration as well meant that our natural villain was someone we couldn't point fingers at too much. Um, so this is and and I think we may be. My hope is that we may be willing to come around and talk about that in a specific way. Also, the republic you know, and, and point point the finger properly. But also, Republicans are making this fairly easy because I mean, so much of this tax bill and I, we've you know I, there's no need to de- delve too deep into it. I think we largely have you know we've talked it's. It's it's outrages are fairly clear, but I just wanted to highlight something that was really fun. 
under the ta- one of the talking points for the virtue of the tax bill, like who's going to get a tax break, who's going to do okay, like what are the types of people that and how will they benefit from this tax bill? Some of these things are cartoonishly funny. My absolute favorite was like, how will a single person who is renting a house do under this? Ta- who is a renter? How will a single person renter do under this tax bill? Well, it assumes this person makes a million a year, and uh, you know, and gives forty thousand dollars to charity. That's that's the talking point. That's the type that they wanted to bring up. Which, by the way, if you're making a million dollars a year and you're only giving forty thousand dollars a year to charity, you are Scrooge. Yeah, that's yeah, and 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 also like, it, but this is or the I'm trying to the, the you know the the but there wasn't all mil, you know single renting millionaires like you know right. I mean to me to me like I, I want there's like a family of two that made two that made like, with two working parents that made or there's a family that made with two working parents that made like. Four hundred thousand dollars a year, two hundred and fifty, you know, two four hundred from their jobs, and then forty from their non-owned other businesses. And it was like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, who yeah. are any of these people? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, this bill got so ludicrous that the things that were really getting me was that some of the things that they started off with as their positions, um, you're going to be like, remember when Paul Ryan waved around the postcard, you're going to be able to send your taxes back in on a postcard. Oh yeah. That worked extra. That's gone. Um, the carried interest somehow still managed to get stuck remains in this bill. As Gary Cohn said, once we got to the Hill, there were two, we got pushed back over 20 times. I don't really know why, like, okay, that we, that, that's enough. We're not going to bother you anymore on this. And again, carried interest is such a is a very minimum. If they got rid of it, it's not like suddenly we're going to be able to, you know, uh, um, rebuild all the bridges across the Mississippi. It's not that big a pool of money. But going back to the fairness argument, it is the most perfect example of the rules working differently for other people. Yeah, oh, and yeah. for it to still be in there, uh, that alone should be enough to infuriate anybody from Trump's populist base. Sure. But but again, what we have seen from his populist base is he can do no wrong. Being a populist and a racist, he's governing as being an he's governing like a plutocrat and a racist. And yep. a lot of those people are still on his on side. So what does that tell you? Well, I mean, so I, I, you know, there, there's a podcast everybody should should check out. I mean, uh, I've for a long time I've said one one journalist who's worth reading almost any word that he writes is Jeff Goldberg. Uh, he's better plugged in in DC uh, than just about anybody. And his writing style is great. Now he's got an interview thing now that he's editor-in-chief at the Atlantic. He's got a great podcast called Atlantic Interviews. He did one with Jonah Goldberg, uh, no relation uh, between the two of them. Um, that is really good and talks about, um, it, it traces a lot of interesting things and it's, it's worth listening to. But you know, going back to kind of the idea that, uh, you know, Trump can do no wrong to some percentage of the population, which is what we've been saying over and over again. These are the so-called deplorables, which we have continued to peg at somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of the population. His popularity isn't much better above that. And I wouldn't say that, you know, Mitch McConnell is, is, uh, has a magnetic enough personality that people are voting for him. But enough about that. What else do we want to talk about, Frank? Uh, I think very quickly, um, because we're, we're running short on time here, uh, but it's just worth pointing out that, you know, on the subject of, you know, who has nice things to say about Trump, obviously we do not. Uh, some of his base does, but fortunately he has another chorus of supporters uh, represented in his own cabinet and, uh, and, and oddly in Mike Pence. Yeah. If people remember a few, uh, it might be months ago now, I guess it was over the summer during a cabinet meeting, uh, people went around the room, um, praising Donald Trump in effusive, almost 
godlike ways. Um, yeah, that, that happened. Really that, unsettling. that was a deeply unsettling scene. Yeah, that happened again this week. Um, and I keep coming back to the point that what we know now, uh, what we know factually now, not, you know, uh, you know, hopeful or thinking what might happen from the Mueller investigation. But what we factually know now is that Mike Pence was treated like a pinata and lied to on multiple occasions. He is already being caught up in this thing really, really poorly. He was also um, beaten with sticks and expected to produce candy. Also that. Nice. And not only that, but Mike Pence is, uh, you know, one of his, one of the reasons he was a popular congressman in Indiana and governor and in radio talk shows, because he's a, you know, uh, a evangelical and he's a strong believer. And there was a lot of talk that after the Access Hollywood tape came out, he was thinking about leaving the of uh, drop dropping off the ticket. Why it took up to that point for him to question who Donald Trump was and what he was doing is a little questionable. But I continue to ask when you see Mike Pence kind of just, you know, well, I'm going to say it, bending the knee to Trump uh, at any given opportunity. What does Trump have on Pence? Because uh, Mike Pence, to me. Uh, if I'm Paul Ryan, and we've, we said this way back in January, I think, or February, whenever we started this podcast, if I'm Paul Ryan and Mitch McConnell, I see Mike Pence in the wings. I'm looking for every reason to get rid of Donald Trump. Sure. He would be a much friendlier figure for them for all sorts of reasons. Uh, and, and there is a, a scenario in which uh, with a, you know, a dem- if, with a, uh, if Trump does lead the Republicans into a disaster in the 2018 midterms um, in both chambers, and there is an opportunity to, by some mechanism, dump, uh, you know, dump him in favor of Pence. It's not. I mean, we're writing fanfic now, but it's not an. Un- right. It's not, I mean, it's not an impossible scenario. Right. I mean, there's either fanfic of Democrats don't take back the House and the Senate, but do well enough that Trump is thoroughly embarrassed, and Republicans realize they're fed up with him, and that the reason they did so poorly is because of Trump. And some of the Republicans decide, okay, maybe let's try to look towards this impeachment thing. Or if Democrats do win the House, uh, without a doubt, impeachment hearings will be, you know, if they win the House in January, when they're all sworn in in January, if we're not looking at some level of impeachment hearings by August, I would be shocked. Yeah, that, it, it is, that is a very foreseeable scenario. Uh, and then the question becomes, uh, you know, if, if, you have, if Trump has screwed up his party that badly, if he's presided over, you know, several electoral embarrassments, uh, you've, gotten your, you've gotten your big piece of legislative, uh, you've gotten your big legislative piece out. Uh, you know, maybe, you know, I mean, what, what, what virtue is there to keeping this guy around? Now, again, there are all sorts of dynamics in play. There is no prediction being made here, but that is a, 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 yeah. a existent possibility, a more than, than fringe possibility. Yeah. I mean, cause if you ask me now, again, this is crazy prognosticating and we talked about this with Noah and like, it's, you know, intellectually irresponsible to go this far, but right now I see, I see better likely than not that Donald Trump wins reelection in 2020. If you ask me that right now, that's what that was what my response would be. So now we're looking at Mike Pence in 2024. Or is he too damaged from from uh, tr- being associated with Trump? And if that, therefore, you know, maybe we're looking at uh, well, if Paul Ryan does leave in 2018, is he going to come at Trump from the conservative right in 2020? Entirely plausible. Or does Nikki Haley, the new you know superstar queen of the neocons, does she become the next you know you know 
the head of it all, or does she just, you know, wait till 2024 if Pence can't run? But that's all a tremendous amount of prognostication. What it boils down to is that Ben Carson and Mike Pence are sycophants, and it's disgusting to watch what they do. And the look on Trump's face as he kind of nodded to each one to continue talking as he sat there with his arms crossed over his fat, disgusting belly was horrific. It was, yeah, it was, it was ghastly. The whole thing was shocking. Yeah. And with that good, nice image in your, in your heads, uh, thanks for joining us. Please be sure to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at @takingship and at ship with a P as in perfidious. Please check out the new Facebook page. I don't know why I keep saying that week in and week out. Uh, we really are actually active on Twitter. So you should check out our Twitter feed and uh, both Frank and I's individual Twitter feeds. I'm at Ellie Jacobs, E-L-I-E. And Frank is at, uh, at Frank, Frank Spring. Spring. Yeah, yeah, we're very easy that way. Um, so check out those. Um, and with that, Frank, where are we headed this week? This week, we go to the Eastern Pacific Ocean, where a Coast Guard cutter uh, recently discovered a sea turtle tangled in uh, a series of nets and lines uh, connected to 800 floating kilos of cocaine worth about $53 million. Uh, the Coast Guard is calling this the rescue of a distressed animal, but but come off it. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the turtle has claimed it was just holding $53 million worth of coke for a friend, perhaps, or it was just for the turtle's personal use. But we at this podcast weren't born yesterday, and we are heading down there to find out what this turtle knows. Anyone uh, who is caught in possession of $53 million, uh, reptile or not, floating or not, $53 million worth of coke, reptile or not, floating or not, must be questioned. Friends, we take ship for the Eastern Pacific and for justice. Take care, everybody.